may be seated. Normally we would stand for the reading of God's word, but uh, I'm going to read, uh, this is the second installment of reading through Psalm 119. Um, we're going to be in verses, I'm going to read to you verses 49 through 88 today as our second installment, like I said. So if you're opening your, the word, go ahead and almost exactly middle of your Bible is Psalm 119. We're going to start at verse 49. It says this, remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs. In the house of my sojourning, I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts. The Lord is my portion, verse 57. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. According to your word, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces." Verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. Verse 81, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? will you judge those who, excuse me, who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies. 
of your mouth. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we want the word of life to change us into the image of your own dear son. We want to be holy because you are holy. Because we know now that we are not what you would have us to be. We want you to make us and form us so that we look more like your son. As we open up your word, we ask you, Lord, as Psalm 119, 18 says, to open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces the fruit of reverence for thee. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. A couple summers ago, a few Saturdays in a row, um, I engaged in conversation with some Jehovah's Witness that were making their rounds around my neighborhood. They are trained, highly trained, actually. I I quite admire Jehovah's Witness for their zeal um, and their faithfulness to spread what they perceive as uh, their version of the gospel, although it is not the gospel as we know it from the scriptures. We'll hear a little bit more about that. They are trained to find commonality with orthodox evangelical beliefs, like what we would espouse in a, you know, in a, in a Bible-believing Baptist church. So we would be in good conversation, and they would be, uh, of course, nodding their head in agreement as I was talking about things from the Word, but I would, the nodding would stop when I would point out a clear difference in the Jehovah's Witness understanding in something such as like the fact that Jesus wasn't created, but that he is the eternal son, always has existed and exists as one in substance with the Father. So that's the, uh, that's the orthodox belief about the Trinity, right? Well, they don't believe that. They believe that Jesus was created. And they would ask me to prove it scripturally. And so naturally, I would prove it scripturally. I would go to, the, go to the text and take them to different texts and show them what I was saying. And the answer over and over again would be, well, that's just how you understand it. That's not what our prophet says. That's just how you understand it. That's not what our prophet says. And after a few rounds of this, I got a little weary of the conversation, naturally. And he, and the main guy that was there, there were about six of them, and the main guy that was there, I could tell he, could, he was sensing that he was wearing out his welcome on my deck and their lemonade was running low in their glasses. And actually, as, as you look to the south from my house, which is where all the weather comes from, you can see a storm front coming in. And so, you know, him being at least a perceptive enough human being to know, I think I'm wearing this guy out a little bit, and he's getting a little frustrated with me, because they kept coming back to that over and over and over again. Well, that's just how you see it. That's not what our prophet says. He, he looked up at this guy and says, well, it looks like it's going to rain, so we, we better just be moving along. To which... Uh, I snarked. <laughs> Did you perceive that on your own? Maybe you should check with your prophet about that first. <laughs> I got a flash of a smile, and then they loaded up in their Cadillac and moved along. Perhaps you've had a similar frustrating conversation when trying to talk with someone about the Lord. 
myself and, the, and the, the guys that were on my porch, we were at an impasse because it was clear we couldn't develop a baseline that the scripture is God's word and that it is clear enough to be understood through the ordinary means of just reading it. What is lacking in that situation, and you may have found yourself in similar situations with family or friends that may not be, un- they may be unbelievers, and you're trying to talk about the word with them, you're trying to talk about aspects of God and truths of the gospel with them, and they keep coming back to that, that tired old phrase, well, that's just the way that you read it or the way that you see it, right? What's lacking is the doctrine of clarity of Scripture, the clarity of of scripture. And this is the second letter in the four letters I gave you last week to describe God's communication to us through his word. Remember, scan, S-C-A-N. Last week was sufficiency. This week is clarity. Then authority and necessity are the last two, S-C-A-N. Sufficiency, clarity, authority, necessity. These are, this is how God has communicated to us. And so today, I want to go to that second point of, and focus on the clarity of God's word to us. And in order to do that, we're going to do three Ds. We're going to define the doctrine of clarity. We are going to demonstrate the doctrine of clarity. And lastly, we're going to identify the dangers of losing clarity. So define doctrine, demonstrate the doctrine, and then analyze the dangers in losing the doctrine of clarity. A careful definition. Let's start there. The clarity of Scripture is carefully defined in the Westminster Confession of Faith as all things in Scripture are not evidently plain in themselves nor clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly expressed and opened in some place of Scripture that not only the learned, not only the smart with high IQs, but the unlearned, in a due sense of the ordinary means of reading, may attain sufficient understanding of them. Now, that's a lot of words, so let me kind of break it down for you a little bit here. There's a few things I want you to notice. Some portions of Scripture are clearer than others. Not every passage has a simple or obvious meaning. That's not, I'm not, I'm not going to pose that to you this morning. Even Even Peter said of the Apostle Paul, what? Some of the things that Paul writes are difficult to understand, but can be understood. The main things we need to know, believe, and uh, can be, main things we need to know and believe can be, though, clearly perceived in the scriptures. Though the most essential doctrines are not equally clear in every passage, they are made clear somewhere in the scriptures. The most important points in the scriptures may not be understood perfectly, but they can be understood sufficiently, okay? So you understand kind of where I'm going and what this means this morning. The doctrine of clarity of scripture is not the wild assertion that the meaning of every verse in the Bible will be patently obvious to everyone at all times. Rather, the clarity of scripture upholds the notion that ordinary people using an ordinary means Reading, hearing, listening can accurately understand enough of what is to be known, believed, and observed in order for them to become Christians and attain the prize that is set before them, which is eternal life with Jesus their Lord. Okay? Now, how do I get there? 
You're saying a lot of things. You're spousing a lot of stuff. Let's go to the Word. Let's go to, if that's true, then we ought to be able to go to the Word and find it in the Word. We're, we're going to come back to Psalm 119. I want to begin today with you in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the passage that Pastor Matt read. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. So a little context here, which we'll learn about context here in a little bit, but the, the book of Deuteronomy records, it's Deutero, which is two, means two, or second, okay? Deuteronomos, namos meaning law. So it's the second law. It's the second time this law has been given. It is in the account, uh, just as the Israelites stood on the brink of entering into the promised land, uh, Moses is accounting the law to them a second time. It's 28 verses of him recounting the law to them again, emphasizing it to them again, and then verses 29, or chapters 29 through 34 are a little bit different, but working backwards, chapter 34 records the death of Moses, chapter 33 is the final blessing of Moses, chapter 32 is the song of Moses, chapter 31 is the selection of Joshua and, and his, his succession plan to Joshua from Moses, and then, like I said, chapters 1 through 30 constitute a long sermon, a long giving of the law. 29 and 30, then, therefore, would stand to reason that this would be the conclusion of this 30-chapter sermon that Moses is giving to his people, recounting the law over again to them so that they will not forget. Okay? And so 11 through, uh, if we zoom in a little bit further, we can see 11 through 20 is the final exhortation of the conclusion. Moses in 15 through 20 is telling the people to choose life and not death, to keep the commandments of God and that he would bless them and that they would have life and that they, would, they are going to inherit this land and they'll get to enjoy the fruit of this land forever if they will just abide by what God has commanded them. They'll just abide. And so in order to make that case to him, that verses 11 through 14 is where I really want to come in with you now. And so we can see what is happening, what Moses is doing. And I just want to read that text to you again. For this commandment I say to you today is not too hard for you. The word of God is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's right in front of you. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word of God is what? Near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. This word is accessible to you, Moses said. It's clear and it's right in front of you. And I've written it on your hearts and I've given it to you so many times now. This is the second enumerating of this law that you've been given formally. Moses is desperate to see God's people stay with God. And at first glance, this passage of Scripture seems to fly in the face of what we understand in the New Testament of Paul's statements about the law, right? The good brother Jonas has been uh, expounding upon the difficulties of keeping the law in Galatians, right? So which one is it? Are they contradictory to, them, uh, to each other? Is Moses contradicting Paul? No. Moses is not talking about law-keeping as self-justification. Understand 
he is speaking to a people that have already been saved from Egypt, already been delivered, already been set free. He's exhorting them to live life as God's chosen, redeemed, and free people. Galatians and Pauline writing, that is all saying you can't keep the law to save yourself. These aren't already saved people. Okay, And so Moses is right, and so is Paul. If you're looking to, pause for a second from this, if you're looking to justify yourself by means of the law, if you are looking to be holy as a mechanism to get yourself into heaven, you're going to run into a dead end. You cannot. You cannot. But because you have been adopted, saved, taken out of slavery, then therefore you can obey God's word is what Moses is saying. He gives, the clear word is right in front of you. You can obey the word as a means by which God makes you more like himself, makes you more holy as he prepares you for the final reward, which is eternal life in heaven with him. Okay? Now, Moses reassures them that the word of God can be understood. And when you think of it, that's not any different from Jesus telling his disciples to obey Matthew 28, right? Obey everything that I have commanded you. Or John declaring, his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John chapter 5. The picture of the word of God in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11 through 14, is something that can be comprehended and obeyed clearly. You don't have to go to heaven to get it, verse 12. You don't have to go across the sea to obtain it. It is, a, it is not inaccessible. What God wanted from his people was not hidden and far off in the sky or stored away. And this stood in direct contrast to the other gods with a little g that surrounded the nations of the people of Israel. Think, back, think with me to the story uh, uh, on top of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. They're crying out to their God, trying to figure out what he wants. Right? You remember this? And then the Lord's prophet says, try crying louder. Maybe he's asleep. Or maybe he's going to the bathroom, he says sarcastically to them. They don't know what he wants. Stands in direct contrast to Yahweh, to the Lord. His people know what he wants, what he desires, what is familiar. And as we understood from last week, in our obedience to the word, it is sufficient as we obey it. It is then therefore sufficient to give us what? Life and strength. Life and strength. To save us and to sustain us. So, defined clarity. Let's demonstrate clarity. I want to take some time with you now to demonstrate from God's word how God's word is clear using passages in Psalm 119 that talk about the clarity of God's word. Right? Blow your mind. Okay, so we're going, to, we're going to demonstrate the clarity of the scripture. What Deuteronomy teaches about the clarity of God's word is confirmed throughout the rest of the Bible. The Psalms, for example, the psalmist compares God's word to light. But rather than just to tell you the interpretation of the verses in Psalm 119, that give further proof and clarity about scriptural clarity, I want to give you this morning some simple tools in order for you to apply this sermon yourself ad infinitum. 
I want to give you the tools as you go to the scriptures. I want to give you some very basic tools of scriptural interpretation so that you yourself, if you haven't already mastered these tools, can begin to master these tools and gain clarity about scripture yourself through reading, through understanding, through comprehending. When you look at any text, if you ask four basic questions of it, you can start to rightfully discern what it is saying. Four C's. You ready? I'm going to give you four words, and then we're going to walk through these four questions with a couple texts of Scripture. And if my technology works right, we'll break them down on the iPad, and you'll get to see it on the screen. We'll see what happens, though. Context is the first C. Context. Question would be, why is it being said? Context, why is it being said? Content, what is being said? Comparison, what, other, what do other passages say about similar things? And four, consultation, what have other saints said about this passage? So context, content, comparison, and consultation. Context, content, comparison, consultation. What I'm about to do is the very basics. If you like further elaboration upon what we would call scriptural interpretation or getting clarity from God's word about what God wants from you, a very helpful little book here by Howie Hendricks. It's called Living by the Book, and it's, kind of, it's broken up to a bunch of chapters. It turns into like a personal study where you can understand how to understand more clearly God's word. $10 at our Welcome Center if you're interested. Living by the Book. Um, Howie Hendricks, very good, very good resource. I used it this week. I use it every week, the concepts he talks about every week. So context, context, let's go first there. I'm gonna start getting this fired up here in a second, but we don't need it just yet. Context, we don't often read something cold. You don't often receive information cold. We usually really, usually have some sort of idea about, where, about what we're about to read and the information we're about to receive or hear And so we can set our brains rightly to interpret the information that we are about to get a sensory experience about, right? You didn't, uh, example, you didn't walk in here today, you expect to come and listen to a sermon, which you already know is a certain type of communication, you classify it as a certain type of communication, you're going to come in expecting something differently than if you were walking into uh, AMC theaters on the west side to watch an Avengers movie, right? Different form of communication. You're going to take a sermon differently than what you would expect at a concert or a a conversation with a friend. And for good or for ill, you might have even known it was Pastor Kurt preaching, and consciously or subconsciously, consciously, you set your mind accordingly to receive that information in the right way and then file it away so that it can become useful for you at a different point in time. This is all context, Context. Have you ever, ever had a conversation with a person that doesn't do real well with context? It's hard, right? Like they just walk up to you and they just say something and you're like, well, back the truck up. What do you mean? Like, help me understand because I know you had context in your brain, but I'm not in your brain, so give me context, right? We, it's frustrating when we don't have it. Equally, it can be frustrating when we come to the scriptures and we're with, completely without what? Context. It could become unclear to us, or we can mistake what's being said or what the intention is if we don't rightly understand why it's being said. 
So over the course of preaching through the Psalms, I've given you a large amount of context as it pertains to the function of the Psalms and the larger purpose of Scripture. They're poetic. They're artistic. They are meant to move your emotions and your soul. By illustration, they aim to move your feelings towards obeying facts about the Lord. Not evidently 100% to be taken literally every single verse, right? It's poetry. They are, there are many different genres of literature. Just to give you a few, and I wish I had time. If I had three hours today, we could, well, I guess we could all take a lunch break and come back, right? Yeah? Yes? Yes? David's like, yeah, I think over there. Go sit on a hill somewhere and do this. But if we had time, we, I would, we could break these down. And you should. And the book, this book breaks them down. There's min, much ink that's been spilt on genres of literature within the Scripture. Understand, the Bible is not completely flat, it's got different types. It's a, it's a collection of different types of literature, historical narrative, apocalyptic literature like Revelation, poetry like the Psalms, wisdom like the Proverbs, prophecy like the minor and major prophets, exposition like the, le- the epistles, the letters from Paul to the churches, liturgy for worship like some of the Psalms that are to be explicitly used for worship, or parable, Jesus use a lot of parables, which is not a literal story, but it's a fictional story that conveys a truth, right? So there's just, it's just not flat. Knowing what type of literature you're going into frames your mind to rightly interpret God's word, rightly value and consider what's being said. So other aspects of context. I promise we're going to get to the passage here in a second. I'm just trying to lay the groundwork for you. Other than literary genre would include who the author is, So Psalm 119, probably King David, okay? Probably King David. It's important because we can then compare to the rest of their writings in Scripture or understand their personalities based upon narratives throughout the Scripture. Historical context, what's being, when it's being written is important. Geographical context, where a person is physically located when they wrote it. Think of Song of Solomon, Right? If you've read Song of Solomon, and he's describing his lover and features about his lover based upon geographical landmarks in ancient Near Eastern Israel. Right? So you might think it's really strange when he says her teeth look like a flock of goad. Right? Try that one on your newlywed wife, right? Oh, your teeth look like a flock of goad, right? You won't get much because in our 21st century what? Context, that's, that's weird. But if you can understand where the author was sitting when he wrote that and what that meant within his context, then you can understand she was probably thrilled to have her teeth called a flock of goad, right? And then most importantly in context is what do the verses immediately around it say about it and what is the rest of the book about that this verse is contained within? Taking verses out of context, this is why this is important, taking verses out of context is an old trick out of the satanic playbook to confuse the communication between God and mankind. It's what he did with Jesus when he tempted in in the wilderness Remember in Matthew chapter 4, Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus out of context. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 context. Take it in context. 
And we still do the same thing today. Wildly. Wildly. And without the knowledge, without spending time thinking and searching, you, you will do it too. And you'll wind up in error. So, context of Psalm 119. It's poetry. It's illustrative expression about the word of God, most likely penned by King David. Seems to be his style of writing, at least, for sure. Actually, some scholars think he might have even used Psalm 119 as a, uh, a poem to teach his sons, the princes of Israel at the time, their ABCs. Isn't that neat? Kind of like, for all you young parents out there, kind of like an ancient Near Eastern letter factory, if you know what I'm saying. I've seen that, that DVD. My, my daughter's watched the letter factory that teaches the alphabet, 4274. Sorry, I'm trying to open up the iPad so we can do something here in a second. It was probably written somewhere around 1,000 B.C. And so the law or the word that he is talking about is specifically the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. So what is actually being said? That's content. Now, we got it up there, Harish? There it is. Okay. So now, second C. So we have context and then content of the verse. Context content, what is actually being said. So this is where people like uh, our, our resident grammarian, Angela Delancey, come in real handy to us Bible studiers because we have to identify what does the sentence actually say? What does it actually say? This is Psalm 119, 18. It says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. One of the most helpful things you can do when studying scripture and trying to find out the content of what's actually being said here, because it can be confusing. Sometimes they speak in ways that are a little bit strange, right? And, and also, originally, scripture wasn't in English. Newsflash. It was in English, or it was in Greek and Hebrew. And so we had to take it from Greek and Hebrew and put it into English, and sometimes that renders things, they sound a little odd to our ears. Okay, so first thing to do, it's, it's helpful. Psalm 119.18. Let's just do content with Psalm 119.18. So hopefully this works. Nope, it didn't work. Let's try again. Didn't work. Shoot. It worked beforehand. Let's try closing the app and open it back up. If it doesn't work. Hey, whoa, there we are. I think it's doing something. Open. Did it work? Hey, open is our first verb. Open our eyes. Open my eyes. If I were to say to you, open my eyes, what is that? It's a commandment, right? So I understand the psalmist here, to, if I'm just taking this verse in a silo, I'm looking at it and saying, okay, he, this is, he's directing a commandment to somebody. Open my eyes, that I may do what? Behold, there's another verb. Wondrous things out of your law. Ooh, this is important right here. Your, who's your? God, right? Now, you, would, you know that because you've been reading Psalm 119, so you've got a little bit of what? Context for what's being said here. Open my eyes. So it's a commandment. This is important. Open my eyes. If I'm asking for my eyes to be open, that necessarily means that without the, your 
acting upon me, what are my eyes? They are closed. Okay? So I need the your, which is God, to do something for me in order that I might do what? Behold, see, perceive, gain clarity, illuminate the wondrous things out of the God who's going to do the eye-opening law. Now, other places, a little bit more, if I'm going to back up a little bit, law is also precept. It's also statute, okay? It's also word throughout the rest of this passage. Okay, so this verse is saying to me, content, I need God to do something with my eyes, literally or figuratively though, right? I don't, do I literally need, are my eyes literally closed when I'm reading the word? That'd be awfully hard to read the word if my eyes were closed, right? This is poetry, so it's using illustration to help me see that I need to open the eyes of my what, maybe? Open the eyes of my heart, right? Okay, that I can perceive the wondrous things out of your law, all right? Let's try the next one. Psalm 119, 105. There's that your again. Your, who's the your? It's God. There, see, now we have, there's law right here. And now it's close to the same word right there. Your law, your word, your precepts, your statute, statutes is a what? Lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Okay, now, this is where context help us. Again, it's poetry, so it is not literally telling us to take our Bible and use it like a flashlight, right? Okay, it's a rather poor flashlight. It's a great book. It's great for illuminating the soul. Not so much good for illuminating a dark sanctuary so you don't hit your, pew, your, your shins on the pews. And you might say, well, that, oh, that's funny. That's an oversimplification. That, and it is an oversimplification. You might scoff at me, but how do you know that it's an oversimplification? Because you've got context. Why have you and I misinterpreted so many other passages of Scripture? Because we don't know their context. We don't know their context. So based upon these two passages in the Psalms, I'm good now, Hash. Based upon these two passages in the Psalms, and a couple more passages, which I'll just read to you, and you you can now interpret them quickly because you're an expert in figuring out content, the unfolding of his word gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Psalm 119, verse 130. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8 says, the law makes wise the simple and enlightens the eyes. So we can, you see it coming together here, we can begin to glean support for the theory that there is illumination to be gained from the communication of God and he aids us in that illumination. So there is light to be given to the path, and we need the your, which is God, to help us 
to have it illuminated. That, so this supports the theory that Moses laid down for God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the holiness and living as God's people is an attainable thing through knowing and being empowered by God's clear word. Unless we think this is just an Old Testament concept, we need to move into this, the next C. So we have context, content, comparison. And we need to compare it to other passages. Maybe, maybe you're just not convinced. We're starting to get clarity I threw out a concept for you. We're gaining clarity from Deuteronomy. We're gaining clarity from the Psalms. But maybe you just need a little bit more proof. And that's where comparison comes in. Third C. Where else in the scriptures could we find the similar concept of the Lord illuminating what has to be illuminated in our souls in order that we can be illuminated, right? That we can gain clarity. A tool called a concordance is helpful. Concordance, lots of C's. It will trace words or concepts across the Bible and give you cross-references for Scripture. It can be purchased for cheap on Amazon, or you can go to esv.org if you're a cheapskate like me and get the free one, okay? And all you have to do is go to Google and say, Bible concordance, free, and you'll get about 150 of them. And what it's going to do, it's, it, it serves kind of like a glossary of terms. So, so in this case, I'd say, I want to know what all the Bible passages are on light, you know, illumination, clarity. And so one of those passages going to come up is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Hear these words and feel them coalesce with the rest of what we've talked about this morning from Deuteronomy chapter 30 and Psalm 119, the word of life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hearts concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now it gets into light. Ready? Walking in light. This is the message we have all heard from him and proclaim to you that God is, God is what? He's light. And in him there is no darkness at all. We lie and do not practice the truth if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, how do we walk in the light? By the your, the God himself, illuminating us so that we can clearly follow the path that's been laid out for us clearly in his word, right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. It's not far from you. It's near. You don't have to cross the ocean to get it. You don't have to reach to the heavens to get it. You can be cleansed from your sin by simply walking in the pre-illuminated light that God has laid out for you. So now we have the same concept of the communication and revelation of God being a clear and illuminating force. We've seen it from historical record of Moses. We've seen it from the poetry of King David. And we've now seen it from the pastoral guidance of the apostle John. And I say to you this morning, I know you're wrestling kids and stuff, but do you feel it getting clearer? Do you feel Deuteronomy getting clearer as we walk through the steps? Do you feel the illumination of the Spirit 
on your heart by just having context, content, and a little bit of comparison. So you can understand yourself and comprehend God, remember I said last week, when you hold the Bible in your hand, when a preacher reads scripture to you, when a parent reads scripture to their child, their voice stops and whose picks up? God's himself. Let it ring clear in your hearts. Just a little information, just a little reading, just a little digging, just a little thinking. And it gets clearer. And it rings clearer. And the fog lifts. And finally, the last C, okay? This one's consultation, consultation. What might other saints say and have said about this text? This has to be the last step. It needs to be the last step in study so that we can be like the Bereans. We wanna search the scriptures primarily for ourselves to see that what men, other men and and women might be saying, other saints might be saying about the text is true because they might be in error, They might not have done their homework. They might be bringing a presupposition to the text based upon their tradition, based upon their sin patterns, based upon their just completely jacked up thinking. Don't trust, don't even trust what I say. I mean, go to the text, view the text, read the text, perceive the text for yourself. It is clear. If we read commentary first, then we allow them to quite possibly dictate our thinking. And that's not, it's not right. It's not the right order. But surely bringing in others who might be more practiced in the area of interpretation is helpful. Amen? Amen. The ESV study Bible has more than once helped me bring a concept that was hazy into clarity. I I converse with Pastor Matt weekly about what he's preaching, about what I'm preaching, about text. And a lot of times I have found myself in grave error just through conversation with a brother who's reading the word too. That's important. Listening to a sermon over, the, over a text, helpful, clarifying, important. Arguing, lots of times I get into arguments with, I mean, although I named my, my middle child after him, Charles Spurgeon, I, I don't exactly 100% agree with all the ways that he interpreted the Psalms. And so I find myself oftentimes in my study arguing with a dead guy about what he thought about a text of scripture. These are helpful, wildly helpful things. But hear me, as helpful as they are, they are not necessary for salvation and practice of the Christian faith. The thesis of the doctrine of clarity is this. God has made himself known in such a way that through ordinary means, you can squeeze all the life and strength you need from God's communication to you from his word. There are only three needed components for this. You, the spirit, and your Bible. You, the spirit, and your Bible. That's clarity. During the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, the Pope the head of the Roman Catholic Church, came out and told his followers, the millions of them worldwide, that because they couldn't go to Mass and they didn't, they didn't have to have a priest, they should just confess their sin straight to God and read the Bible themselves and be strengthened by it. 500 years too late, right? I belong to a couple uh, Reformation-based Facebook groups, and oh man, they had a meme war with this one, Right? That brings me to the final part and the third main point here. 
understanding the doctrine of clarity. We had definition of the doctrine of clarity from Deuteronomy. We had demonstration in the Psalms and in 1 John. And now I want to, I want to articulate to you in closing the dangers, definition, demonstration, dangers of losing it. First, if we lose clarity. The first gift of human freedom is at stake. Human freedom. The Protestant doctrine of clarity is, uh, of Scripture is one of the foundations for religious liberty in the West. Implicit in the affirmation of Scripture's clarity is the recognition that individuals have the responsibility and the, and the ability to interpret Scripture for themselves. Not apart from community, evidently, or without attention to history and tradition and scholarship, but you can interpret Scripture. God has given you all the things you need to interpret Scripture for yourself. And I want to quote, I'm going to read another quote from this book, Taking God at His Word. I know I'm like a bookstall this morning. Also $10, you can get it at $7 on Kindle. Kevin DeYoung, and from that book, he said, In the final analysis, the doctrine of clarity means that I should not be forced to go against my own conscience. Only the Lord Jesus, speaking through the word, is the Lord of the conscience. Of course, this most Protestant of all doctrines has opened a door to all sorts of problems, factions, eccentric interpretation, rampant individualism, and the like. So there, are, there is a price to be paid. So it's a whole lot less clear. It's a whole lot less messy to say, well, only my interpretation reigns because I'm pastor. You guys just listen. Right? Or you have to listen to the priest. Or you have to listen to the prophet. That's a whole lot less messy, isn't it? But it's also not scriptural. It's also not good. It's also not true. It's also not from God's word. On balance, however, the disadvantages do not outweigh the advantages of clarity of scripture. For the denial of clarity of scripture carries with it the subjugation of the layperson to the priest or the person's conscience to the church. The freedom of religion and the human conscience of the church and theology stands and falls with the clarity of Scripture. The biblical doctrine of clarity can be abused, and it often has been abused, but even though it creates bad interpretations at times, it's worth the price of reading the Bible for ourselves. Second and lastly, second danger, What's at risk here if we lose clarity? We lose the ability to know what God is like and who he is. What God is like and who he is. The question is not whether we are haughty enough to think we have peered into eternity and that we can understand God and all of his omniscience. The question is whether God is the sort of God who is willing to communicate with finite creatures and do so effectively. The question is, can God speak? And can we understand him? Is God wise enough to make himself known? Is he gracious enough to communicate in ways that are understandable to the meek and the lowly? Or does God give us commands that we can't understand? From the beginning, in the garden, the evil one has sought to disrupt and bring doubts into the hearts of mankind that God has revealed himself and that we are able to clearly see him through his communication to us. So when liberal scholars claim that scripture contains errors because of translation issues and limitations on human speech, well, you just, you know, our words just aren't sufficient enough to describe God. So you can't really put God in a box that way. That sounds humble on the surface, but the underneath of it, at its root, on its foundation, is the hiss of the evil one. When groups 
like the Church of Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witness or even Roman Catholics need prophets or priests to interpret to them what the plain word of God means, you can still hear Satan hiss. And when you are talking with your unbelieving family member and can't get a baseline established with them when it comes to God's word, well, that's just your interpretation of it. You can still hear him hiss. On October the 6th, 1536, English reformer William Tyndale was executed by strangulation and his body was burned at a stake in a town square. His trouble began 13 years earlier when Tyndale, a Catholic priest, appealed to the Bishop of London for this simple thing, to, for his support and permission to translate the New Testament into English. Tyndale's request was denied over church concerns about whether or not his translation would be accurate, but what, what actually lied underneath of it, they didn't want it to become clear to people. They wanted to be able to tell people what the Bible said according to them, not let them search it out for themselves. But Tyndale didn't give up. He found freedom and support in the city of Worms, Germany, with Lutherans, where in 1525, he published the first English New Testament translated from Greek. For nine years, he managed to evade authorities, eventually taking up residence in Antwerp, Belgium. During this time, Tyndale edited his New Testament and began translating the Old Testament. But in 1535, he was betrayed and turned over to church authorities. A little over a year later, he was condemned as a heretic. And during his trial, he was asked this, you have been arrested and charged with heresy. How do you answer? And Tyndale said, I answer thus with a clear conscience before God and man that I have never maintained, affirmed, averred, or asserted anything contrary to the plain meaning of God's holy scriptures. On these alone, on these alone, I stand. And Henry VIII of England, who was one of his harshest critics, criticized Tyndale's work as false, crafty, and untrue. According to historian John Fox in Fox's Book of Martyr, Tyndale's last words were this, open, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Within just four years after Tyndale died, four years, the king sanctioned four English translations, all based upon guess whose work? Tyndale. We have the scriptures in our mother tongue because there was a man named William Tyndale and others like him that cared about clarity because he knew, he knew, brothers and sisters, that the word gives life and strength and that God has brought it near to you and I so that we can see it, we can taste it, we can hear it, we can experience it, and it will open our eyes that we can see wondrous things from his law and be saved by them and strengthened by them. You have God's voice in your lap. Open Bibles. You have his words in your hearts and in your minds. May he, with ever-increasing measures, give you clarity. One more time. Context, content. What's next to, you know? Context, content, comparison, consultation.
May you do those things and may God give you clarity as you study his word. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, open our eyes to see the privilege we have to read the scriptures in our mother tongue. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Open our eyes to see the truth you have clearly laid before us. You have made yourself plain to us, Lord. If only we have the eyes, if only we have the eyes to see. Be thou our vision, Lord of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, let's stand together and let's sing these words of this hymn. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart.
fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to Seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Let's sing about our day of clarity, this final verse. Oh, that day when free from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, Bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with you. At Come, my Lord. Last. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass, for I 